Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, brought to you by Paragon Wellness. Each episode, we discuss the modern behaviors that trigger positive emotional states by tapping into the body and brain's evolved needs, which are so often neglected in modern life. Join us as we talk with experts in a relevant field, as well as everyday people who've experienced better mastery over themselves and their lifestyles through applying the principles of behavior we espouse. And if you'd like to know more, please join us at paragon-counseling.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness. Thanks again for joining us. the Therapy Evolved podcast. As you may notice, this is not the voice of Ken Knight. Uh, This is Beth Pace, and I am joined today with Molly Barr, licensed mental health counselor, Um, and we're going to talk about what I think is a really interesting topic, so I'm really excited about this, a pretty juicy topic about maybe physical health versus body image and how those are not synonymous, um, but sometimes get treated that way. But before we really get into the the meat of this topic today, um, Molly, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what got you into this in the first place, um, and then, yeah, just who you are and what your deal is. have a private practice. I'm currently living in Haiti right now. We're stationed here for a year. And before that, uh, I had a practice in Hawaii for a few years. And before that, New Orleans, we kind of bop around. Um, so I got into this field. I actually kind of fell into the addictions field uh, in terms of working with uh, addictions in therapy. And I, But I always wanted to work with eating disorders. So As I was working with substance dependence, I kept thinking, okay, this is going to be a smooth transition. This is going to be easy. It's just like a food addiction. However, this can be something we address later. Food addiction is not actually an issue. And that's something we'll talk about later. But so I quickly learned that food addiction is not actually something that we treat. And even if so, even if we say that there is such thing as a food addiction, we cannot treat it the same way that we treat other substance uh, addictions. So um, trying to think of where we go from here. Well, something I remember you saying to me a long time ago was, Back in back in the day when like that was kind of your framework for talking about addiction or about eating disorders was food addiction and you said but it's the only like addiction or it's the only kind of like compulsive pattern where abstinence is not an available like treatment strategy so you think about someone who might have an opiate addiction right maybe I'm using that in finger quotes but they can like remain abstinent from opiates likely for like the the course of their entire life whereas with food or with like a, a, a relationship with food that's really fraught or troubling, abstinence doesn't work because you'd starve to death. Absolutely. So if we're going to say we're addicted to food, then we're going to have to say we're addicted to water, to air. You know, we, we, you just can't be addicted to something that you need to survive. Mm. Okay. 
And then just one little tidbit, what actually sets us up to feel addicted to food is actually the restriction of the food. So that's different too. You're not going to feel addicted to uh, heroin because of the absence of heroin. It's very different. Mm. I Oh, and as a, as a brief side note for our maybe like six listeners um, who are going to hear this podcast, I am... Um, not Ken insofar as I don't read as much as Ken, but I'm also not Ken in the way that I perhaps like approach working with clients or even the topic of evolution. However, I am really going to try to bring Ken's curious and scientific spirit to this talk. <laughs> so I may ask you some questions where maybe I'm, I'm with you, where I'm like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, but that maybe someone out uh, who's listening to this would be like, I don't know, Molly, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So if I could, I may at, at a couple of different points, like stop and ask you if you'll just like explain something a little further uh, because it's blowing my mind. I love it. And actually, curiosity is one of the number one skills I think we all need to develop. So I'm into that. Okay. Um, And so you got into, you knew you wanted to work with eating disorders, um, and then you found out that it was just a completely different, uh, in order to be successful, it needed to be a completely different approach than just like the kind of standard um, addictions treatment. And, but then you started to get a little more specific in your focus, and I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the more I got into it and the more I really um, – I had supervision and I educated myself, went to different lectures, I learned about this concept of health at every size and intuitive eating, and I felt like, I don't know, everything stopped. My whole entire life changed but I thought of it at the time of like you know like a spiritual breakdown like Brene Brown says because everything I thought I knew about health and uh, dieting and you know what what we should be aiming for was completely wrong and it just blew my mind yeah that's um because I've been socially conditioned um as I believe that you have and everyone else um not everyone else, a lot of Westerners, uh, that this, this idea that thin equals healthy. And so that Mm -hmm. you can be thin and that that is an external indicator of physical health, um, which has got some problems. That's got problems to that logic. Absolutely. And I'll break down what health at every size is. We, we usually just say haze and a lot of people be like, what is haze? What are you talking about? It stands for health at every size. Okay. So This is a weight-inclusive approach to improving physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Because as you know, with a lot of restrictive, um, any kind of diets, it's usually just focused on the physical health. That we kind of avoid, you know, how is this affecting me emotionally? How is Mm. it affecting me spiritually? And it's really a more inclusive approach because not everyone can be one healthy at every size and not everyone can be healthy if you're struggling with let's see chronic pain uh infertility um other kind of health conditions it's hard to believe i'm healthy and i'm not saying that because you have those problems you're not healthy i just think that when for some people when they have these issues uh it's just hard for them to think like yeah okay i can be healthy at this weight or with this condition so it's a lot more inclusive Mm, mm. and this Go ahead. 
was going to say, we focus a lot more on what are sustainable health promoting behaviors rather than intentional weight loss. So we just, we set the weight loss aside. We don't even look at weight at all. It's just, what are some health promoting behaviors we can focus on? And that's something I think most of us can agree on. It's a lot of the same behaviors you engage in when you're dieting. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, I've got to try and find more synonyms for the word interesting. If I try and catch how many times I say it a day, it's embarrassing. I get really embarrassed. Um, but that's all right. Uh, maybe a little gentleness. It's curious to imagine, um, that if Ken were here, he would agree with that, right? This idea of health promoting behaviors are not just around weight loss. It's getting the chemical payoff of exercising or getting the, um, the relaxation benefits of meditation or quieting maybe obsessive thoughts. And that has so much more to do with overall health, um, or, or optimizing human performance. Cause again, I'm going to try and really take it really try and bring Ken's spirit into this conversation today, um, that optimizing our human performance can't just be about when I lose 30 pounds, I'll be happy, I'll be healthy, I'll be, for lack of a better, um, maybe unhelpful cognition, I'll be fixed. Absolutely. Now, Part of the problem, so someone's going to say, like, what's so wrong with dieting? What's so wrong with losing those 30 pounds? There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. And it makes sense why we would want to lose weight. It's diet cultures everywhere. The problem with it is that the majority of diets fail. We regain the weight, and up to two-thirds of us will regain more than we lost. So actually, weight loss is the greatest predictor of weight gain. And so there's nothing wrong with weight gain or having a larger body, but if your aim is to get a thinner body, then you're, you know, you're going to fail at that. So we just have not found that there's no single proven diet to provide long-term weight loss. Mm. And so I'm, that all makes a lot of sense to me. So then intuitive eating, um, I could intuit what I think that means, but take a quick second to kind of explain that for everyone. Sure. It's a mind-body approach where we reconnect, uh, we respect, and we honor our body and its wisdom rather than some outside source telling us when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. It's getting to know your body and the signals it sends. It's aiming for satisfaction in the food that you choose. Mm. Um, What I love about it is that it's not pass or fail. So you know, that's still, that's diet mentality. If you feel like, oh man, I really just messed this up. I ate past fullness. This is all just information. Mm -hmm. It's not like you failed. It's let's get curious and figure out what led to that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So the, so back to this idea of getting curious, um, because the thing that Ken and I have talked about, that's like a recurring topic, um, around what, what creates a lot of suffering for us as human beings um, and, and he mentioned it in our episode 11, which was the Buddhist psychology around what causes suffering, which is craving, avoidance, and delusion. And I think about how those three things um, really easily or pretty seamlessly uh, apply when we talk about something like diet or restrictive eating or maybe body image. That is so true. And I, you know, I'm sure we all agree we're trying to get away from black and white thinking. Mm. 
But what seems simple, at least to me, is thinking, you know what, we're either resisting or we're accepting. And so that kind of, for me, that kind of tied into, am I resisting something right now or am I accepting it? The resistance is what's causing the suffering. Mm. And it's interesting you say that because there goes interesting again. I got to just stop getting stressed out about it. Um, it's, it's interesting to say that because I, I'm with you on resisting, right? I'm with you on resisting being really painful. It's like you're kind of trying to swim upstream. Um, it's really challenging. But accepting is really suspicious because acceptance when it comes to I accept things I can't change, right? Um, but I, I bring attention and energy to what I can change, uh, because I could have maybe a really hateful, loathing relationship with my body and say, well, you know, I just accept that this is what my body's like and how, how my body feels and how I feel about myself. And then I'm actually using the word acceptance as an avoidance strategy, but we can't go too far down that rabbit hole because we'll be like, we'll be totally somewhere else off topic. I just think it's, um, one of the things that I want to kind of bring up just at least in the intro is also how this might pertain or tie into human evolution and why this is actually pertinent to us for cultural ideas around health. And when I was on my way here, uh, to, to Skype with you, I had this possibly helpful or completely crackpot analogy that came to me, which was think about the way that hats have changed over time. What they used to be were like big sunshades to keep you from getting hot, uh, to keep you from getting tired, you know, long, long before anyone ever was like, oh, I, I don't want wrinkles on my skin or skin cancer. Hats were about keeping, were really functional. And then you think about maybe like, as we as a species has evol- have evolved and developed and our ideas around what's helpful, what's not helpful, what matters, what doesn't matter, think about what, how hats have changed. Now they're not these like wide, outrageous looking sunshades. Um, think about like a fascinator, you know, this idea of a teeny circle of a hat that you would pin into your hair and it's just for aesthetics. There's nothing about that hat that is functional. Maybe it's beautiful and it's got a huge peacock feather in it and you might have spent a lot of money on it, but it doesn't actually serve what was originally a hat's purpose, <laughs> which is to protect your head from the sun. Um, I know that might seem like it's way out there, but we've got to come at least at some point because this is therapy evolved and we talk about evolutionary psychology is why, why bodies, um, have anything to do with human evolution or um, why cultural ideas around health have anything to do with human evolution and then why we're why a lot of people in 2018 are stuck either in a diet cycle or maybe they're in physically terrific shape but they hate their bodies and so can we call that healthy right if we're talking about spiritual or emotional or mental wellness you bring up some great points. There's a lot we can go into and in, uh, just on that alone. One of my third, my first thoughts is 
these, um, so they're sisters in Utah, I believe. Their Instagram is Beauty Redefined, and they are just completely changing the game on body image. One of their sayings is that my body is an instrument, not an ornament. Okay. Actually, don't quote me on that verbatim. It's something about Okay. like that. So when you're talking about these fascinators, I'm thinking that is us dressing up our bodies as if they're ornaments to be looked at Mm -hmm. rather than instruments to use. So at some point, we started to shift our focus to how we present to the world and how can we dress up our body to be admired by others. We got our self-worth tied up into our appearance. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and so even pre-self-worth, if we're thinking about, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, um, our brains are not nearly as developed as they are now. Maybe our cerebral cortex is not as thick. um, And we have a pretty stressful life. Um, And let's, I'm saying like you and me, you and me in this example in like a a community of 12 people. we're doing a lot of work. You're gathering stuff. You're help like you're helping take care of small people, old people. Um, someone else is putting their bodies under an incredible amount of stress um, to to bring down a large animal so that we as a group can eat. And so fat storage energy storage or um, what our bodies are, which was an instrument, what we didn't really have at that point in our human evolution. And I'm just picking 10,000 years ago. We'd have to get Ken to like do the cleanup podcast where he just like gives us all the, all the straight uh, human history science or like paleontology, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But that we also don't have the luxury of time to sit around and be like, does is Molly prettier than me? Am I fat? Right. So like there's, there might be, there might be some of that, like, Ooh, do I feel good? Do I not feel good? But most of the times when we're getting those messages, if we look way, 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 way back in human, um, human evolution or just the evolution of like primates, we get messages about, am I safe? Am I not safe? Am I in danger? Am I hungry? Um, I'm listening to uh, another podcast where Robert Sapolsky, who is a neurobiologist at Stanford, does a a college course that's called Human Behavioral Biology 101. And one of the things he talks about is the reason that we take care of each other in community is because it helps us survive. But even pre that, the reasons that we take care of some people in community and not others is because of kinship selection. So what he says, which I think is like sometimes hard for me to wrap my brain around, is a chicken is just an egg's way of making another egg. At our most basic as like beings or animals, like even just like bacteria, we're trying to reproduce. And one of the things that helps us reproduce is staying safe enough to have kids, keep those kids alive long enough, 
um, we take really good care to uh, like of those kids and not necessarily somebody else's kids because we want that kid to grow up and like pass down our genes. I'm, I'm definitely going somewhere with this. I'm not just trying to like, um, impress you. <laughs> and so what that means though, is some of the more seemingly elegant, uh, things that we do as, as humans in 2018, uh, like compare ourselves to other people actually have basis in, um, in like human survival. So he was talking, uh, Robert Sapolsky was talking in one of these lectures about, I think it was just like the kind of intro to evolutionary biology that two, two primates, two apes, um, two female like apes, one might do something like really wrong and kind of crummy to, to another one, uh, like steal her food. I don't know. And then what they've done are some studies that if these two like adult females have two daughters, that if the daughter of the mom who got like wronged or taken advantage of, the person who she's the most likely to like take it out on is the, the daughter of the, uh, of the female who like did the first offense. How do we learn how to do this? Oh, there's, there's a dog in the background. He's working really hard to take us, take good care of us. Um, okay, we're back to we're back to recording. Um, so, okay, so back to our example of what we're doing when we're participating in in a community. It's always about species survival, um, kinship selection, so that we want to take good care of our kids, grandkids. We want to take good care of ourselves so that we can have a good reproductive life so that we can have babies, stuff like that. Um, but of all things, that comes into the evolutionary basis of the need to fit in. So that was something that you had, um, you had communicated with me while we were talking about maybe getting ready for this, uh, this podcast, is that like there's we want to fit into the collective and we also have certain ideas around what's attractive, what's not attractive. Um, I read once a long time ago about this really hilarious study, uh, where they showed like they showed pictures of men to like, women who are ovulating versus not ovulating and then figured out who they found more attractive when they were ovulated versus when they were ovulating versus when they weren't. And it, I don't think it's going to surprise you necessarily what, uh, what like sort of by and large, what women found attractive, uh, when they were ovulating was like square jaws, lumberjack looking, you know, like, um, strong guys. And what they found attractive or more attractive more often when they were not ovulating was people, was men who looked like they would be good providers or men who looked like they wouldn't leave. So like there's absolutely a chemical and a genetic component to our need or our desire to feel good, look good, fit in. It's just in 2018, we maybe don't need it as much for species survival as we 
did 10, 20,000 years ago, but tell your midbrain that. Like, it's not just as simple as being like, oh, I shouldn't care what people think because now I don't have as much of a resource scarcity. So let's, to tie back into uh, the evolution of it, let's look back 10,000 years. They didn't have mirrors. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have social media to compare themselves to almost 8 billion other people. Yeah. I'm living in a house right now that we don't have full-length mirrors, and... I didn't think about my body all that much before then, at least in the last few years. Um, but now that I really can't see my body, I I really don't think about it nearly the same way. And if I'm putting on clothes, I'm really paying attention to how do I feel in these clothes rather than how do they look on me. Mm. So it makes a really big difference. We are now comparing ourselves to yeah, thousands, thousands, billions of people on Tinder. Who's the hottest person on Tinder? Who's the hottest person on Instagram? That's going to up the stakes of how do I look against these other people? It still comes back down to like, who do I want to meet with? Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's, it's or different. or who's my competition? So yeah, who do I want to mate with? Who's my competition? Um, because as you're talking about that, I'm also thinking about cultural attitudes in different places in the world. So uh, can apparently lived with a tribe in like the Amazon for a series of months and said it was like pretty fascinating, a pretty fascinating experience. I lived in the Marshall Islands for two years uh, where their cultural attitudes around beauty were in some way similar to like westernized, uh, more developed countries, but in some ways they were so, so different. And so I'm sure I've told you this, uh, this anecdote that when I lived there, Um, (laughs) I was eating a lot of rice. I was eating a lot of, um, like processed food because that's what was available. And then, um, my host family would say things like, God, you're so beautiful. You're so pale and you're so fat and your eyes are so little. (laughs) And it was just like melting my consciousness because what we hold as such high value, um, in the United States here in the Marshall Islands, they're like, oh, you're big and your eyes are so small and beady and you're, you're pale. And I was just like really freaked out by it. But right, so you're, you're living in Haiti right now. You're living in a place where you don't have any full-length mirrors. And you also talked to me about some of your just like maybe anecdotal or observations of living in Hawaii with you know, some Pacific Islanders and now living in Haiti. Um, and just talking about like body image or body size and attitudes around it. It's in our culture is the Western culture is everywhere. I was looking at the airport. I flew back in, um, maybe a week or two ago. And I noticed these ads of all white women here mm. in Haiti. And I couldn't imagine what small percentage of white people are here. But Mm -hmm. when that's all you see in your media, and not that that's all that they see, but you begin to adopt this very unrealistic expectation of beauty. It's a very narrow definition of white, thin, young, able-bodied, cis, heterosexual people. And that's going to change our attitudes of like what's healthy and what's an ideal body it's completely 
ignores body diversity. Mm. Or that someone could be able-bodied, be a bigger size than someone else and be shamed for that, for just the size or for the, the, um, they may be, they may be making up like a higher percentage of what people look like in that, that country or in that city or in that town, but they're still having to look at the central group of powers interpretation of what is attractive, what is, uh, what is healthy, what is beautiful. And spoiler alert, we could all eat and exercise the exact same way and we're still going to look different. That's body diversity. Ugh. Unsurprising newsflash. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so the other thing that I think is really interesting is because you and I talked a little bit about this um, as as two people who have, have... worked together and have similar maybe organizational style there's an outline you and i are both looking at because we want to be on topic um is the evolutionary origins of guilt and shame and this is something that i used to talk to my groups about uh when i worked in substance abuse counseling and treatment is i'd walk in and say just quick question for everybody in the room is it okay for me to um push over an elderly person that I don't know that I just see on the street and everybody goes, no, oh my gosh. And I'm like, okay, but why is it wrong? And you know, we start to unpack, um, why like right and wrong or good and bad, um, are actually really necessary concepts, uh, for species survival. If we're going to try and survive in community, um, or like that there's a sort of shared human understanding that we shouldn't hurt kids and in most places it's illegal to do so you know um so then what i bring it to is yeah like here's another example here's a hot take Fifty thousand years ago we're all living in a group together we have gathered some food um that we're all going to share and then i just i don't know decide i want to eat all of it and in my, in my groups, they'd always, and I asked them like, well, what would you do? What would you do to me? And they go, oh, we'd kill you. Um, and the answer is no, not kill me, punish me. Um, isolate me from the group so that I get this really strong message that when I do something that hurts the collective, there is danger of me getting kicked out. And so when you watch uh, nature videos, um, there's one I can think of in particular, where apparently this, this guy, this, uh, this, I think maybe it was chimps. I think it was chimps. This chimp has done something that has like upset the whole group. So they're, um, they're eating a meal in a circle in a really tight, tight, tight circle. And every time he tries to like get some of that food, he gets this really strong, like push out, like you're not welcome. Not to kill him because he still has resources that are like available for, for the group to survive, like reproduction, strength, you know, his body as an instrument, right? But he's getting the message like, if you do something that hurts this whole group, um, we're going to isolate you and make you feel other than. And the whole idea is that those people that kind of get that um, do better in community and pass their genes on. And so one of the reasons that we as human beings have the experiences of the emotions of guilt and shame 
does have its, its basis in evolutionary origins. But if you were, say you were talking to a client who, um, is, is talking to you about like body image issues and like guilt and shame, how would you guys be defining or like discerning the difference between guilt and shame? So I break down guilt as feeling bad about something you've done. Um, we, I think we could definitely jump into food rules here because we feel guilty if we think we broke a rule. Mm. Or I feel bad I ate that carb. I feel bad I, eat, I ate more than I was hungry for. So first we try to figure out what was the rule? Where did we break it? Where did you learn this rule? Is it still true? Would you tell anyone else to follow this rule? Does this fit your current values? There's all kinds of stuff we can we can jump into there. Yeah. So shame is feeling like I'm a bad person. So guilt is feeling bad about something you did. Shame is feeling like a bad person. Or I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough. That's really a lot of the, the body image stuff right there. Yeah. And as you're talking, I also am thinking about um, in in our field, a lot of times, or especially in like cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, we talk about the difference maybe between a primary emotion and a secondary emotion, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the easiest example that I give to people is, say I'm sitting at home one Thursday evening, I get this like flash of like boredom and loneliness and I'm about to reach for my phone and text a friend or see if someone wants to meet me for coffee. But before I'm able to engage in a behavior that's healthy and adaptive that would help me cope with an unwanted feeling or an emotion, my thinking gets in the way and all of a sudden I start like ruminating like, you know, I always have to reach out to other people and nobody ever texts me. And you know what? I think I'm just gonna see how long it'll take before anybody even notices that I haven't texted or called them. So all of a sudden I went from maybe the primary emotion, which is natural, normal, and right size, which is like boredom and loneliness, into stewing and seething with anger and resentment. But I've talked myself into that place. This is not something that other mammals have the brain capacity to do. We have like the fourth thickest cerebral cortex in the animal kingdom. That's like the computational ability to even think about our thinking. So when I think about the difference between guilt and shame, well, so then in that example, the primary emotions are boredom and loneliness, uh, the desire to connect or the desire to be stimulated. But the secondary emotions are the anger and the resentment. And those are the ones that I have actually manufactured by stressing myself out in the way that I'm thinking or talking to myself. That's amazing. Like what sort of brain power it takes to do that is amazing. But as we bring it back to guilt and shame, guilt is the evolutionary hardwire of, ooh, I feel bad when I've done something bad, right? How do I feel when I've broken into my grandmother's safe and stolen $2,000? You know, bad. But with regards to shame, I think about shame as a secondary or a manufactured emotion because it has to be created by a story. You know what I mean? Does that make sense to you? Yes. So what you're talking about is diet culture. Diet culture is something we've learned. We have learned 
actually what we're talking about is fat phobia which fat phobia and weight stigma is the last socially acceptable form of prejudice this is something we've learned we're not rate we're not born believing that fat is bad and thin is good okay so fat phobia that is assuming someone is unhealthy based on the size of their body this may also manifest as a fear of gaining weight or that being above a certain weight is unhealthy and i kind of want to pause there because i think that's going to blow some people's minds because you know it's hard to it's hard to hear that i might be engaging in something that's like similar to homophobia or racism this is something you are judging someone on based on how they look mm-hmm. how they present to you and it's completely false so let's start with some compassion because this is something you learned you've been told your whole life that to be thin is to be healthy and that's something to be aiming for but let's really think about it. who profits off of these insecurities who planted this mm. i have i hope that question's not rhetorical because i have an answer for it <laughs> go for it okay um which is someone somewhere receiving benefit from that cultural attitude being pervasive. And when I say receiving benefit, I mean then sells me the diet book or the detox tea or, uh, hey, look, um, sells me the corset if we want to go back maybe like a hundred or so years um, maybe a little more, right? So I, I believe then in the, in the answer to that question is someone's making money off of me feeling bad. Mm-hmm. And you know where it's hard to believe this one is how pervasive fat phobia is in our medical profession. So let's dive into the BMI Sure. So, that would, so we could also call that the BS measurement, or what is it? Well, so body mass index is. Oh, okay. So it's it's your weight divided by your height or something like that. I don't know. I don't remember. We'll just replace the B for BS. <laughs> so this was actually never intended to be used in a medical setting. It was never meant to judge someone's health. It was actually formulated by a mathematician for the use of research studies on weight diversity. So what happened was insurance companies caught on to this and they decided to use this as a reason to charge more money due to a correlation of weight and health. However, there is no proven causation. Weight does not cause health problems. There is a correlation, but not a causation. Okay. It's just like how there are increased sales of ice cream in the summertime and also higher murder rates. So there may be a correlation there, but one does not necessarily cause the other. There's more. In 1998, they lowered the BMI standards. So 30 million Americans woke up one morning and they were suddenly considered overweight. But you can't guess who funded the study to lower that. It looks like you're going to guess. 
I think I'm going to get it wrong. Oh. So I'm going to shoot my shot. I, okay. <laughs> I was going to say like Self Magazine or like a health insurance company or um, a pharmaceutical company. Those are like my top three guesses. drug companies. Ah, okay. Close uh-huh. enough. And so, yeah, so all of a sudden being overweight um, also became this like, you know, one of the things I, I walked in once on Ken Knight, LPC, who is the, you know, the owner of Paragon Wellness, under whose umbrella we are doing this podcast today. I walked into a, a men's group that he was running and he was like, they were talking about fear and he goes, well, but we have to operationalize that definition because until we do that, all we're doing is using a sound or a symbol and it could mean something completely different to everyone in this room. And so he starts like with the group and I'm sitting in observing this. He's like, we have to come up with like, what's our shared definition of fear. And the reason I think that's pertinent to what you just said is that overweight was like a definition or like an idea perhaps then that got operationalized by people who stood to make money off of people, make money or save money off of people being, and imagine me doing finger quotes, overweight. Ooh, you are spot on. Yes. Over what weight? Who decides that that's the weight you're supposed to be at? It's, you're absolutely right. And we're actually, we're trying to, we're trying to get rid of that word. We're trying to get rid of obesity, Mm -hmm. trying to change the language around how we talk about bodies. Now, a lot of people in the community are trying to reclaim the word fat. I'm going to be careful with the way I use it because I do have thin privilege. So I'm not going to use it in front of someone unless they are also on board with fat is just a descriptor, just like I have brunette hair and I'm short. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to change the language around just saying smaller body person or a larger body person um, instead of saying obese and overweight. Yeah. And so then, or this, like if we're going by how we feel versus how we look or what the scale says, you know, so I think that comes back to this idea of intuitive eating. Um, I, boy, uh, quick anecdote have been sort of exploring eating less meat. And, um, in that was like, Oh, well then I'll just get some vegan cheese. That stuff does not agree with me. Um, we'll just put it that way. So I don't have to talk about nutrition or what to eat or any of those things. I'll just say that like for a number of days, I was really not feeling well and I was having to sort of sleuth out, like be my own detective. What's going on here? Why don't I feel good? And then finally I was like, oh, duh. It's this new introduction in my life that is really not agreeing with me. And so that we're, if if we're taking back this idea that we have to feel good or we have to look good based on someone else's standards, well, right, you could wake up in 1998 and the standard would have changed overnight. Or for example, that Reggie Bush, who is a uh, NFL football player, has, uh, based on his body mass index, he's overweight. Weight to height. Right. Because he's like a shorter guy, but we all know, like if you're picturing, um, if you're perfect, like picturing a professional athlete, this is not someone who's fat. 
um, or or larger bodied, right? But like what his body does for what it calls for, like how much muscle he has on that body is about like it's instrumental, right? It's meant to work for him. Um, So I'm keeping an eye on the time because um, we are... We could do, man, we could talk about how this impacts us or how this is really painful for us um, for a lifetime, but we don't have a lifetime on this podcast. Can I make one point on that weight yeah. part? Yeah. So it's not really one. It's a large one. <laughs> weight is not a good indicator of health, as, as you were just describing. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a weight stigma, chronic dieting, weight cycling, and actually underweight is what's worse for health. Health conditions that we normally associate with people who have larger bodies are all present in smaller bodied people. High blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, high cholesterol. And a lot of my clients who were at their lowest weight and not even necessarily underweight we're at their most unhealthy. So that's another kind of shift to think about. Yeah. And no, no, I, I agree. I think what I mean is like, we could talk about the systems that have, Mm -hmm. uh, that have set human beings up for a lot of suffering in, um, in 2018 or in like present day. Um, because we could talk about it forever, but this podcast is going to be an hour for today. So one of the things that I, I do want to just like come, come back to like this idea of the motivator to get healthy or be healthy, um, cycling back or coming back around to shame. If shame is the motivator, no matter what like destination, body fat percentage, number on the scale, uh, inches around your waist is, no matter where the destination is, if shame is what fueled you to get there, you don't just magically lose the shame because you achieve the goal. I couldn't agree more. Guilt, shame, fear of developing future health issues is not an effective motivator for change. A better motivator is what feels good right now or in the very near future, which brings us right back to health-promoting behaviors. If it feels good to go for a walk and move your body, you're going to do it. If uh, eating the vegan cheese doesn't feel good, you're not going to do it. But if you fuel your body with foods that feel good to you, you're going to do it. Yeah. And so... The, I talk about this a lot with uh, my clients in my practice is shame is a powerful motivator. Um, it will absolutely get you somewhere. But if you don't heal the shame or bring some curiosity and some attention to some of these ideas, like I'm not good enough the way that I am or something about me has to change before I'm lovable or attractive or... Um, one of the things you said to me the last time that you and I were sharing a meal, uh, we were talking about just something really offhand and you were like, right, but that's what happens when you treat yourself like a body first and a person second. And that really hit me hard. Mm-hmm. So when we can step, after going through why we feel like we need to lose weight, who's profiting off of this, diet culture is literally everywhere. 
let's think about this. Have you heard of the, the concept that it's not about the food or it's not about the body? I mean, in terms of uh, eating disorder recovery, we'll say, oh, it's not even about the food. And then it's like, well, what it's about? The desire to diet or to lose weight, that is like a signal on the dashboard. That's like the check engine light has turned on. And it's alerting you that something is going on that needs attention and it has nothing to do with food, your weight, or your body. So that's when we dig deeper. That's the sign to me. If somebody's telling me, oh, I just want to lose that last 10 pounds or whatever they have to say, I know that it's not about the weight. So we got to figure out what it is. It is dieting and eating disorders are the best distractions. It is so much easier to focus on losing weight, getting those reps in, eating certain food, than to think about the pain you're going through in this divorce or if you're having issues in your relationships. Um, the transition to being a new mom or dad, moving, any kind of life transitions, death, loneliness, anxiety, depression, it's all of these other things. Mm. Well, and I am not at all... Um embarrassed to use myself as an example in this um, because someone that I know who works well, who works in eating disorders, which is you, um, I reached out to you one day and said, okay, here's a hot take. I have been recently fantasizing pretty strongly that if I got cool sculpting, and for those who are not in the know, that's uh, getting fat, freezing, non-invasive plastic surgery on your body, um, but my idea was like, if I get cool sculpting, all of my self-esteem problems or all of my like problems, just sort of put an umbrella over it, all of my problems are gonna be solved. And what you said to me was, then that's a really good indicator that there's something else going on. And we kind of ran through a quick checklist of what could it be. Turns out the answer was, I needed to clean my house. <laughs> And it was not that I needed to spend $700 on cool sculpting. It was that I was feeling disordered in another place, Lit like literally disordered, which was that my house was messy. Um, and that that was really overwhelming to me, but to do a, a daily, regular, concrete and ongoing, right? I don't get to just mop my floors once. I have to do it for the rest of my life if I want them clean. I'm still coming to terms with that. Um, but, but we fantasize about this idea of like a concrete destination that's like a one-time thing. Lose 30 pounds. Get a flat stomach. Um, that actually works for body image too. We believe that there's this like final destination and we just arrive and we appreciate our bodies and that's not actually true it's just a, it's an ongoing practice well and so one of the things that i have here on the outline that i think it's just worth it to bring up is um someone once really uh made me laugh because they we were talking about instagram and we were talking about comparing ourselves to other people which is like a, a compulsive behavior that we have but it's also conditioned over time um, for like species survival. So we can't necessarily eradicate it entirely. But what they said was, yeah, Instagram sponsored by shame. Um, that made me laugh, but there's a lot out there on the internet about 
self-care. Um, and I was wondering if you would be maybe willing to take a second now, like as someone who's in your field and does what you do for a living, what do you, like, what does self-care mean to you or when you're talking to your clients? First of all, since you brought up Instagram and there's so much body policing and comparison and shame on there, we got to remind ourselves that the grass isn't always greener. It's either fake or it has a filter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That is all Instagram is. It's all smoke and mirrors. Um, wait, I'm sorry. Now I, I just distracted myself. Well, self-care, so the question right? is then what's like, what's true <laughs> self-care then, right? Cause like if, if the Instagram definition of self-care or I look on, on social media and it's like one bubble bath or hashtag self-care, I bought myself this $300 pair of boots. Like if, if you, if we're kind of demystifying maybe like a, a more curious or a compassionate definition of, of caring for self? Well, first of all, um, we do not have to like our body or even love our bodies in order to take care of it. So that's, let's start there. Cause a lot of people have a hard time engaging in self care cause they don't think they're worth it mm. or they don't like themselves. It's hard to take care of something if you don't really like it. So one of the concepts I actually start with is body neutrality. So your body is neither good nor bad. It just is, it's completely neutral. Before we can start on on other concepts, we can also focus on body functionality, what you appreciate about what your body can do, but also body respect. So what would that look like to respect your body? Again, you don't even have to like your body to respect it, but perhaps you respect it enough to go to bed at a decent hour so you can get at least seven to nine hours of sleep, or you respect it enough to drink a little bit of water here and there. You're respected enough to no longer berate yourself. And when you notice that you're getting into that self-shame, uh, as I say, tunnel, um, you bring it back to body neutrality and body appreciation. What do you appreciate your, about your body? You know what I actually really love is the question of what would my 99-year-old self say to me now? What would she have to say? What would she tell me? But also, what would my 99-year-old self appreciate about the body I have now? So that mm. kind of gives us another way to look at it. Yeah. And so, because I, I think about self-care getting kind of tied up in this, like, it's supposed to be this really, like, organic, natural, de- like, thing you desire. But it's also just, like, a singular event. I took a walk in the park. So hashtag self-love, hashtag self-care. And I sometimes think about, yeah, so I love the idea of, like, you could treat your body or you could treat your being with the same level of respect that you would respect or perhaps professionalism that you might treat a colleague or a coworker that you're not totally crazy about. Perfect. <laughs> you don't exactly. go to work and you're like, I hate you. I've always hated you, which is why I'm not going to uh, respond to your emails or ever like exchange pleasantries with you. You're like, right, I'm just going to remain neutral enough and treat you with like enough respect that I can sort of get what I need out of this situation, which is like a paycheck or to not be terminated or something like that. So wellness culture is just diet culture disguised as wellness. So if you think that self-care is about 
getting a massage and getting your nails done. And I love those things. And I'll probably say self-care, but real self-care isn't going to make someone else make a profit off of you. So self-care, in my opinion, is treating yourself with respect, uh, setting boundaries, being assertive, resting when you need to, fueling your body when you're hungry, and really just taking care of yourself. That's, and what's really interesting is that that's work, right? Or that that's work and that's habits, whereas a a bubble bath is a one-time shot. So kind of back to cool sculpting versus keeping my house clean on a schedule. Um, One of them seems easier with a bigger payoff when actually the other one is where I get the sort of lasting feel good um, experience of like having a home that's clean because I respect myself. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So we're, we're coming up a little bit on our time, but I did want to really briefly, cause like in the first episode that Ken and I did where we were talking about like co-hosting, we talked about stress and how we receive sensory information um, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. And then our hippocampus basically receives it, processes it, compares it to like memory, um, and then sends a message to our amygdala to release the appropriate hormonal response. And like that's oversimplified. And I'm sure that like wherever Ken is right now, his like spidey senses are tingling because I'm sure I could have explained it more elegantly, but he'll be all right. Um, but so, Coming also into just really briefly, like stress and memory, um, or how hating yourself or having, you know, buying into diet culture, for example, might be inherently stressful. And then I'm, I'm hoping perhaps that we can, you can give me a couple of like really concrete takeaways of some of the things that you found that have been really helpful. Sure. So the majority of diet advice is disordered eating. Let's just throw that out there. So counting calories, restricting your intake, weighing, measuring, tracking your food, skipping meals, using caffeine and water and sleep to avoid eating, juice cleanses, avoiding social events to stick to the diet, having cheat meals, binge days. Uh, taking fat burners, diet pills, all those things, everything I'm listing, not only is that considered disordered eating and not enough people know that, but that's creating a significant amount of stress on your body. Especially if you are restricting your intake or restricting certain food groups like carbs, fats, sugars, bread, whatever it is, if it's not for a medical necessity, and then you throw exercise on top of that, you are really stressing out your body and those things actually end up causing insomnia and and as I'm sure we all know we really need sleep to help regulate all kinds of systems I'm sure Ken can get into that too so stress on the body and things like weight stigma are so much worse for us than just living in a larger body or the body we're meant to be in. Hmm. So the takeaway 
Make peace with food, make peace with your body. Look into health at every size. This is more of like a concept, it's a social justice issue. And consider looking into intuitive eating. I really simplified it because there's actually 10 principles. Uh, They're not rules, but they are principles. Um, And so if you can make peace with food in your body, you're going to eliminate a significant amount of stress. What people don't realize is how much time, money, energy, brain space, your conversations are so sucked into food, weight, and dieting when you subscribe to diet culture and Mm. that diet mentality. So if you are not doing those things, you are about to free up so much time, money, energy, and brain space to engage in the things that actually fill your bucket. And you are going to start to live a much more purposeful life and a life that really aligns with your values. Because something that stands out to me, I always do... um, a values clarification exercise and I have people look at a list of values and have them pick out what are the values that they have and what are the ones that they're engaging in and also what are the values of an eating disorder or um, dieting so a lot of those tend to be with dieting is like power beauty control safety and those don't appear in the values that they actually have. Never. They've actually never once. The values they actually have are more like family, um, freedom, flexibility, friends, completely different sets of values. So no wonder why it's so unfulfilling to focus on all these other values. So all, all that to say, I think that that is all going to significantly reduce your stress. Mm. And when it comes down to... Um stress because I mean, that's really, that's the human experience. You and I used to play that CD, which shows how, how, how times have changed about stress by Dr. Alice Domar. And one of the things that she says in that, and we're talking about maybe like when she recorded it, it might've been 2010 or something like that is that the human body has something like 50 stress responses per day in Mm -hmm. our current culture, but it isn't things like running away from a mastodon or uh, trying to cross a river or a stream that's got alligators in it. It's, I, I get on the scale and I see a number that I actually associate worth meaning to, or I get cut off in traffic and now I'm like vibrating with stress. I get an email from my boss and now I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. And so then when we think about why buying into diet culture, um, restrictive eating, that kind of power, beauty, control, safety, I think about how compelling it can still be. So I know that we're not talking about food addiction, but we can get, I think, addicted to the chemical payoff that comes with like chasing something that may not necessarily be available or that isn't entirely real. So it comes back to this idea of like craving, avoidance, delusion. If I get cool sculpting, I won't have any problems anymore. That's, you know, pretty diluted. 
um, the craving is like, and then when I'm attractive, I'll be lovable, right? Like this, this thing I, I chase or that I desire. And the avoidance is like, look, my house, my, my floor is dirty. That's why I'm feeling really like overwhelmed or maybe like off the beam, but it doesn't have anything to do with like what my body actually looks like. So there's a, um, let me see if I can pull this up without having to stop our recording. There's actually a tarot card that, um, the, the picture on it is, um, a woman swimming upstream. I think it's the eight of water. And the reason that I think about it being so, uh, so significant in this way is that it talks about how doing what's right for you, not as it's informed by any cultural messages or maybe our baser, like fear survival response. So actually checking in with yourself and using some of that intuition or, um, like thought around what, what's good or what's right for you is actually one of the most radical acts that you can engage in in your human life, which is not just buying what someone else is selling you. Staying connected to your true self and your ultimate, if, if you're wanting ultimate belonging, I even have my clients write out a mission statement. Like what's your purpose? What are your current values right now? Yeah. So, he, so here's what it, here's what it says. Um, the eight of water and it's a picture like a woman swims upstream in a river intent on reaching her destination. She's focused and determined as she takes action to live an authentic life. There may be times when she feels like she's in over her head when she wants to turn around and let the current take her swiftly and easily downstream. Um, but then she'll just have to pick herself up and head upstream again after having lost a lot of ground. Stay true to yourself. The river whispers, keep to your course until you make landfall. Love it. And so I, I know that you are also, um, I know that you're EMDR certified and I know that if you had like an elevator pitch for someone about like, how could they get further support? Right. Cause we're talking about make peace with your, make peace with food, make peace with your body, consider, uh, these things. Um, and sometimes, right, like what someone might be avoiding by engaging in any manner of like restrictive or disordered eating or like a self-loathing relationship with their body, um, what they may be avoiding could be excruciatingly painful or a lot bigger than just, um, I changed my relationship with food. So can you give me maybe like a, a, a super brief plug on why, what EMDR is and why you think it might be helpful or how it might pertain to what we're talking about? Sure. So EMDR, it's not just an intervention, but it actually has a whole theory attached to it. There's eight phases. It's not just the bilateral stimulation. So they found that with bilateral stimulation, so I actually literally wave my hand in front of my client's face or I tap their knees back and forth. Uh, it reduces the vividness of the incident and it lowers its, its level of disturbance. So by disturbance, I mean, you know when you feel activated in your, in your chest or in different parts of your body, if you're feeling really stressed, that really uncomfortable feeling. So it was originally created to treat PTSD, but they found that it actually works on core beliefs in general. So we're actually targeting the core belief. Core beliefs are, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough, and as you can imagine, that's at the core of a lot of uh, people who diet and eating disorders. So by, um, by, I can't really say eliminating, but reducing the distress of that core belief 
and stimulating the problem-solving process in your brain, you begin to develop a positive core belief. So for someone who comes in saying that they're worthless throughout the session, or maybe it takes a couple of sessions, they get to a place where they say, I'm worthwhile or I'm enough. And they actually believe it. It's so, it's so cool. It feels like magic and it seems weird. And I'm probably not even describing it as well as I could. But um, if you're interested in EMDR, absolutely look into it, Google it. What I love about it is it's pretty fast, especially compared to traditional talk therapy. Even yeah. I, I value both, but I'm talking just a couple of sessions. Um, the most I've heard is like 20 sessions for a very severe case. Yeah. Uh, and you don't really talk. I literally tell my client every time I ask them to talk, okay, in 25 words or less, what are you noticing? Mm. So somebody who doesn't want to talk in therapy is probably, could probably really benefit from EMDR. And so uh, for for all six of those listeners, uh, some of whom who may not know what that is, um, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And so like Molly said, it's an integrative psychotherapy approach that has been researched and proven effective for the treatment of trauma. And a lot of times, so you would need to find someone, say you were looking for uh, this intervention, you would need to find someone who's certified because that means that they have gone through the training, the standardized protocols. Um, But also when we talk about, um, a lot of times when I say the word trauma, people imagine uh, losing a limb in combat or um, a a car crash that... um, like resulted in them like losing the use of their legs. But when we think about chronic stress over time, that can also be incredibly taxing, painful, and uh, could benefit from EMDR. And when I think about chronic stress over time, I think about a lifetime of a running narrative like, I don't, I'm, I won't be lovable unless I look this way or I'm not good enough or the world is not, I don't fit into the world. So we think about like shame kind of as this overarching worldview. I also think of it as that core belief long ago. So all of these things get planted in our early childhood, sometimes even well before our, our active memory um, begins. So it could be when we're, you know, one one, two, three years old, what happens is it's like you pull up a document and you label it, I'm not good enough. And so every time something triggers that core belief, you add that to that document. So now you have who knows how many pages of documents of like proof that you're not good enough. Mm. So what I actually do, I ask someone, you know, what's really, what's bothering you right now? What is the issue you want to work on? I ask them, what's the worst part about it? And we get down to the core belief. Yeah. And so when we get down there, I'll ask, okay, what's your first memory of that happening? And the reason why we do that is because we're more effective at clearing out that whole document. If we can start from the very first memory, the, um, touchstone mm-hmm. now, everybody's different. So not everyone's going to start at that memory because that memory might be too painful. Mm-hmm. If you have very complex trauma, I might even start with a future fear of I'm not good enough. So some people might have a future fear of never getting married and that really activates them. So we might start in the future. We might start in a current trigger and work back. 
That's really, um, I learned a lot from this discussion today, Molly. Awesome. Um, I figured this was going to happen. We burned up an hour fast and I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk about this with me. Um, I feel like I really learned a lot. It was certainly useful and helpful to me and hopefully so, uh, for some of the other people who may listen to this. If someone was trying to find you, follow you, uh, figure out what your deal is on the, the world wide web, uh, where would they do that? On Instagram, probably I, my handle is Molly B counseling and I expand on everything we talked about today. So if you are interested in what we talked about, even if you really don't agree with what we're talking about, but you're still interested, come on over. Have oh, a shot. that sounds great. Okay. And so, yeah, other things that we talked about that might be like um, opportunities for follow-up was definitely intuitive eating, beauty redefined, and um, health at every size. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to tell you that I'm really grateful to you and um, – Hopefully, uh, you'll just continue to do the really solid work that I'm certain that you're doing for people. Thanks, Molly. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. It's our calling to provide information and inspiration to help people achieve happiness, self-mastery, and better lifestyles in any way we can. But I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that though I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not sufficient to count as clinical intervention nor advice. Please contact a local professional if you find yourself experiencing distress that does not improve with a good and simple routine. And finally, we're striving to improve in all that we do, all the time, and as such, we'd love your feedback. If you want to connect with us further, please do so at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness.